Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Yeah, so I mean, there's multiple dimensions here. There's the policy, there's the politics, and there's also the process. That's Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the leading voice of the progressive movement. A lot has changed in Washington for progressives like Ocasio-Cortez. In 2021 and 2022, with Democrats controlling the House, she and her allies could block any piece of legislation if they held together. Their big fights were with moderate Democrats over how many trillions of dollars to spend on President Joe Biden's agenda. And they had easy access to the White House with Ron Klain as Biden's chief of staff. Now, they're in the minority and far from the negotiating room where Joe Biden is trying to make a budget deal with Kevin McCarthy to get him to raise the debt ceiling. Their big fight is trying to stop the president from caving to McCarthy on what they view as draconian budget cuts and policies that would weaken the social safety net. And over at the White House, it's not really clear who they should call anymore. AOC is keenly aware of these changed circumstances. She's been carefully watching the debt limit debate play out, and she has a clear view of what it's all about. This is really about the president and who is around him and how we are choosing to navigate this intersection of power. This moment is about power. People may not like that. People may not want this situation to be about that. But that is fundamentally what this is about. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been in Congress since 2018. That's long enough to have learned how to use her unique influence to affect legislation, even when she's not at the table. So as you'll hear, she has a few ideas about how House progressives can flex their muscles right now. And she has some advice for Joe Biden as we approach the endgame of the debt limit. But she also has a warning for the president. We caught up with Ocasio-Cortez in her periwinkle-walled office on the Hill as she was preparing to drive home to New York City for the weekend. Let's start with the the debt limit Mm -hmm. negotiations and just very open-ended. Where do you think we're at? What are your sort of concerns about where things are? And what are you sort of optimistic about? I'll start with policy first. Policy-wise, it is so important for us to emphasize what the actual stakes here are and also the context that we're in. The debt ceiling is not a vehicle for wholesale political agenda setting. It cannot be that because we cannot have the entire stakes of the full U.S. economy put at risk um, over a political back and forth. There is a 
strong reason why this has not been a vehicle for negotiations and it should not be a vehicle for negotiations. Now, in terms of the policy of what Kevin McCarthy is trying to propose, this is not some back and forth negotiation with no stakes. But the politics of the situation, I think, is really important to discuss as well. You have President Biden at the White House. You have Democratic control of the Senate. But also, even within the House, while there is a Republican majority in the House, they do not have the Republican votes in the House to pass even their own proposal or their own package. And so this idea of negotiating... Pardon? Didn't they pass it? They passed a messaging bill But if that bill were to come back and be the real deal bill, I do not think they would have the same votes on actual final passage. And so what is really important, I think, to understand here is that it really seems that no matter what Kevin McCarthy in the House is going to require, he needs Democrats to bail him out. This is not a situation of him holding all of the cards. And that is what makes the difference. His party is not united. And not only is it not united by a little, we're hearing and we're really seeing that most of the evidence is pointing that he only has two-thirds of his caucus. And he may need many, many Democratic votes. And so for that, I think it's really important to understand exactly how weak his hand is here. And also the 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 options that President Biden and Democrats have um, are frankly much broader than the ones that he has right now. I want to get to the options too. So we want to talk about the Fourteenth Amendment, but on the cracks, what do you think the cracks are? What are the issues that you think that McCarthy's caucus is um, divided over? Well, we got a preview of this during the Speaker's vote earlier this year. He came on the right more than in the center. Right. And he came in requiring a historic amount of rounds. I don't remember. Was it difficult for him to get that? 14 (laughs) rounds just just to get the votes for himself to become speaker when there was no other option, really. I totally agree with you. But I mean, I think a lot of us predicted he would be finished by now Mm. watching that go down. Aren't you a little surprised by how he's held it together this long? You know, I'm not because we haven't voted on much. This has been one of the least productive starts for any speaker in modern political history. I don't even know if we voted on all of his messaging bills yet. And so we've only had, what, three, four, five major bills come to the floor in five months. And so he has avoided this, this kind of warfare by avoiding bringing anything really substantial to the floor. Yeah, yeah. And now we are at a moment where we must negotiate something substantial. There is a hard date and there is no getting out of it. And he does not have a plan, which is why they are relying on Democrats to govern in this moment and why we should be governing in this moment. A lot of the news since the weekend has been about um, President Biden seeming to open the door to this idea of tying worker requirements to, to benefits, you know, temporary aid to, uh, to needy families, food stamps, Medicaid. I interpreted Biden's comments on Sunday 
uh, in Rehoboth as saying he was open to TANF. It's a smaller program. Red line, Medicaid was definitely a red line. And food stamps was kind of ambiguous. I don't think any of the comments from the White House have, sh- have changed my analysis of that, just reading really closely everything they've said. Um, one, I'm curious to see if you read all of that, if you've read the tea leaves the same way and perhaps you, you, know, you have more information by talking to folks over there. And two, um, how concerning any of that uh, is to you. Well, on that, you know, on that one issue. Right. I do think it's pretty concerning. I think that the dynamics of the situation are such that if you are negotiating with an unknown entity, right, Kevin McCarthy does not know how many votes he has. He can't even go to the White House and say, if you give me this, I will have X votes. If you give me that, I'll have Y votes. And so when you start to open that door, when there is no concrete offer on the other side, it just kind of becomes a a bank raid. <laughs> they kind of go in and and see what what else is there on the table, right? Without yeah. revealing anything that they have or don't have. I think it's ill-advised. I don't think it's a good idea. But in terms of reading the tea leaves, you know, I think the president is generous in his disposition around speaking to Republicans, his willingness to have these conversations. I I do not personally think that we should take stock from one comment in one moment. I think it's important to read a pattern. And in more recent comments, I've seen him kind of walking that back. And also, I think it's important to understand here that because Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes in his caucus, and not by four or five, but by 20, 30, 40, or potentially 50 votes, The White House needs to understand how many Democrats do they have that would actually vote for these kinds of cuts. You have the Progressive Caucus right now that is about 100 members. Yeah. And many of them probably automatically off the board. You have the Congressional Black Caucus that just issued a statement very forcefully coming out. And so that brings you now to maybe about 100 to 150 Democrats potentially off the board. And so if they need... 50, that really starts to make the the Democratic ability to opt into a deal when Kevin McCarthy is so short, it starts making that math difficult. And that is where I believe Hakeem Jeffries plays a role here. Uh, Just because Republicans have the majority, what they need is is that they need us to bail them out here. And when the tables are flipped... There have been moments where we have had extraordinary democratic unity, but we had five defections, right, from perhaps the more moderate end of the caucus. Yep. When we're in a situ- when Democrats are in that situation in the majority, it is an understanding that there must be a negotiation just for those five, just to pick up what you need. Right. Right. And there's also an understanding that you give up a lot to the Republicans in order for them to win those votes for you. Each one of those votes should represent a concession for Republicans. Every single Democrat that that Republicans will need to bail them out in this situation should come with protections. And frankly, once again, the president has options. We also have an option here in the House, which is that we just um, 
put together a discharge petition that was signed yesterday. And what's it on now? Is that two ten? I think yesterday. It, yeah, it's about two ten. I believe that the other three would would vote vote with us without yeah, a shadow of a doubt. And you have eighteen Republicans that are in very strong Biden districts, and you only need five of them. They're not going to sign it. Well, you know, <laughs> that's like a suicide pressure. note. If if, well, if, to, if you do if you do that with McCarthy, you're but you know, dead. I think that the question here is: Is it because he just laid out? precedent in January where you had many members who did not support him. And we really have not seen consequences for those members either. Right. There's been a, and yeah. he needs... If anything, he's like given them more stuff. Right. And as we've seen from the George Santos debacle, he needs every single one of his members. Kevin McCarthy cannot afford to punish his own members too harshly right now either. And so he is very limited in his options, and I think it's very important that we that we recognize that in this situation. Can I ask you sort of a meta question about this process? Like, we're bumping up against June first, which may or may not be the X date. As a member of Congress with a big megaphone, how do you think about your role in? a big consequential national debate like this um, where there's negotiation going on, but you're not in the center of it. You're not in the room, mm-hmm. right? Because it's this very small group, White House, McCarthy. But how do you sort of think about leveraging your influence in a process like this? Mm-hmm. And it's a little different from some of the debates in the first two years of the Biden administration where Democrats had the, the majority and negotiations were going on among a, a bigger group in, in, in the House. How do you think about this process and how you use, I mean, for lack of a better word, your power? Well, no I mean, ma- doing an interview like this, right. I assume, is part of it. Like, you yes. know, like how, do you, how do you think about that? Yes, because no matter who is or isn't in the room, uh, public opinion always is. Yeah. Public opinion is the unspoken fourth or fifth person in the room. And it dramatically shapes the dynamics, the incentives, and the decisions that our leaders make. I believe that the White House is very responsive to public opinion. They care very much about where public narrative is going, where people are on certain fights. You've seen that. You have examples of that. I have seen it. I have seen it. I have seen it in some of the most consequential moments of the Biden presidency so far. Wait, give me an example that stands out from from like the first two years. The bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah. Was there a moment there where you look back and think like, you know what? That was a tough moment. Things weren't going exactly where we wanted. We did X and we got Y. You know, that's analogous to this. Yeah. You know, I do think that there were a couple of moments. Well, the actual passage of the bill, the timing of the bipartisan infrastructure law in and of itself was due to a response to media and due to a response in public narrative. It was a concern that that the narrative around the ability to govern was getting away from us, and that is why this needs to happen now, and that's why it needs to happen in this fashion. And so I think it is very important that the public is 
not just reading tea leaves or trying to understand the palace in intrigue, right. but that we have this conversation from the vantage point, not of what do we think is going to happen, but what do we want to happen? How do we make ourselves clear about what is best for people and what is not best for people? And that is when we need to kind of take a step back from having so much of the oxygen in our public conversation being about gamesmanship or negotiation or this and that, as opposed to do we want veterans' health care to be cut right now? Right. I mean, we really need to talk about the actual consequences of this. Pandemic SNAP and pandemic food assistance has expired, and we are seeing explosions in food insecurity across the country. We're seeing it in New York City, but we're seeing it in rural areas, suburban areas, everywhere. To cut food assistance, potentially in a time after those cuts have already happened, after the COVID phase out, it would be devastating. And when we center and make sure that we take command of public narrative and become voices and shape and help educate the public about what the true stakes of this conversation are, then we can become that fifth person in the room. President, a president with public opinion has far more leverage than a president without it. Yeah. And it's very important, I think, that we get in the game and really explain the stakes to the American people. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the process. One thing I'm curious about is just Ron Klain had the reputation of being really, really attentive to um, progressive members in, in the House. Um, sort of, you know, you get them on the phone whenever you wanted. At least that was the reputation. Um, how has it changed since he left? Is Zions a similar sounding board and um, uh, person that, that you can have those conversations with? Is it someone else in the White House or else, elsewhere in the administration? Like, who's your go-to person when you're concerned about where something is going and you want to, like, sound the alarm? Yeah, I mean, I do think it has shifted pretty significantly. I don't think it's a similar dynamic. I do agree that the dynamic um, with Ron Klain was very open. I think right now... For me personally, it's hard to tell sometimes um, what is getting through and what isn't getting through. And that, I think, is a dynamic shift that is noted for me personally. Perhaps other members have different experiences. Um, I also think, you know, from what I've been hearing with some grassroots partners, that they don't feel the same receptiveness or true partnership, I'll mm. say that they had experienced previously. I think that it is a note of concern, especially around issues that are very important, but also can be 
difficult to navigate, like immigration or environmental provisions. It's been tricky. It has been very tricky. And so we're talking about oil and oil in Alaska. Yeah, and Willow tit- Project, and Title Forty Two. Title Forty Two. Yep. You know, it's not. It's very much not good to be surprised yeah. by these things, especially from entire caucuses. You know. Yeah. Is there still a bit of a, a hangover from that, from feeling burned about those two? I mean, they came one after another. It, it seemed like a lot of agita on the left over that. You know, I think uh, in terms of members, we are in a moment where we're just trying to figure out what we can do right now to maximize whatever benefits communities can get. Yeah. But with grassroots movements, I think it's a different story. Yeah. And I think that there has been a shift and I think that that shift is re- is reflected in a lot of data, including public polling. Um, and what I think is also going to be very indicative is what happens with this student loan ruling. I think it is that's going to be how the administration responds in the event that the Supreme Court overturns either in part or whole uh, functions of the student loan forgiveness program, uh, I think is it is going to be a very significant point. And I think it's very important that the administration has a plan that is an actual response in the event of the Supreme Court overturning the program. Oh, that's really interesting. So that's something to watch carefully. Absolutely. Has that, if the ruling goes the wrong way for progressives, is it obvious what the options will be or you just have to see what they did first? Like the groups that care about this, have they been able to communicate potential options or it's just too early? Well, I think what we can do, I think we can game things out in advance. You can't predict it perfectly, yeah. but in following the case and in following uh, some of the developments and following the nature of the court challenge, I think we can at least game out what happens if they overturn based on eligibility? What happens if they overturn based on um, on the actual rules surrounding the program? Is the president prepared to re-administer the loan forgiveness program? And I think this is the most crucial question. The most crucial question is if the administration is prepared to, in the event of a ruling overturning the actual execution, if is the administration prepared to move ahead with the program with modified or expanded rules in order to accommodate such a ruling but still provide people relief? That, I think, is the litmus test. Or do they just take whatever it is laying down and say, well, it's canceled. We're, we're not going to do done. anything Sorry. else. We're right. done. Yep. That, to me, is going to be a major, major tipping point. And I think it is very important that the administration game some of those things out. Is it possible that that the court may overturn it based on grounds that are potentially unforeseen or less foreseen? Yeah. Potentially. But we should not walk into a Dobbs-style situation where we literally had the ruling months in advance, yeah. and it seemed as though the response was not fully prepared for when we literally had the answers um, in advance. And the court saying this was right. We should, we should not be in that situation. Yeah. With this Mm -hmm. on the process. So Louisa Terrell, Steve Reschetti, Shalanda Young of those three, 
I guess the question is, do you have any concerns about that team being the team that's negotiating this? Is there one of those? I mean, Rochetti kind of has a bad reputation among a lot of progressives. Is that like still the, the, the case? Well, what I think is important is that I think these are people that are like very highly skilled, very knowledgeable about the ins and outs of programmatic requirements. But these decisions are not about administration or the fine lines of rulemaking. These negotiations are not really about that. And that is where I think this is really about the president and who is around him and how we are choosing to navigate this intersection of power. This moment is about power. Yeah. People may not like that. People may not want this situation to be about that. But that is fundamentally what this is about because Kevin McCarthy's demands have never been consistent nor deeply substantive. This is not about debt. This is not about deficit. And that's evidenced by the fact that they're trying to even put permitting reform on the table here. This is in no way a substantive conversation from the Republican side. This is about a desire to build, communicate, and exert more power than they have. And how the president manages such a challenge um, can potentially translate into him giving up real power uh, and Kevin McCarthy turning a posture into a more firm position. Um, The 14th Amendment, what's your, your view about that option? I think the grounds for it are legitimate. I think the president should absolutely have this on the table. And I actually think that this is something that transcends ideology among Democrats. Yeah. We are seeing moderate and progressive Democrats alike coming together saying that we should not be in this situation. The Constitution tells us that it is a violation to not honor our debts, period. And so this is not an area of political negotiation. Um, is there something you would want? Do you want the president to come out and sort of put that on, on the table? He sort of put it on the table, but then took it away in mm-hmm. those comments. Mm-hmm. I think that the president should absolutely have this on the table, not even to have, it's not even a question of leverage. It's not a question of negotiation. It's a question of uh, saving our economy from potential disaster. And Kevin McCarthy has decided to take the entire U.S. economy hostage in exchange for vague and unfocused demands or gestures, I should really call them. It is profoundly irresponsible. It is posing a threat to our economy. It poses a threat to our national security. And I believe that the chief executive has a responsibility to protect this country. Let me ask you one other question that a lot of I've been talking to a lot of Democrats about. It's not about the, the, the debt limit. And let me know if there's other parts of the debt limit that we haven't discussed that you want to you want to get into. But um, there's this debate among Democrats uh, uh, about 2024, where I see half half of Democrats saying, you know what, Trump is the devil we know. We know how to beat him. We did it in 2018, 2020, 2022. We can reassemble that anti-Trump coalition. Um, we should basically be cheering for him to win the Republican nomination. 
um, and finish him off once and for all. Other Democrats say, that's insane. <laughs> Rooting for him to be the nominee puts him, you know, this close to being president again. That's incredibly dangerous. One wrong thing happens in the general election mm-hmm. and he's back in, he's, he's back in office. Um, frankly, I feel like a lot of the people in the Biden campaign universe are in the, the former category mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, what's, your, what's your view of that? I don't think we should ever be rooting for Trump. In any situation, I think he is. Even if he's the easiest person to beat. I mean, I think that, but that is the moral he, dilemma there. But it's is like, he? Because 2020 was not was not a blowout. We have to really understand that as long as the electoral college is in place, these elections are very often decided sometimes by tens of thousands of votes right. in a very small handful of states. And and I think 2020 actually on that metric was closer than 16, mm-hmm. right? Just the number of votes in the states that would have flipped, right? Absolutely. And we see from the Republican field, he still has a strong command over a base. Whether I think he's weaker now or not, I think it doesn't matter. I think that this is a person that, as we saw from the CNN town hall, There have been a lot of institutions that have not learned. And we are still, I think a lot of people think that they know better now and that we are better prepared now, but there are still profound weaknesses in our system across the board, profound weaknesses electorally. We have a lot of states that have only leaned into changing their state structures and laws to become more authoritarian to provide there are already these attempts at republican takeovers of state legislatures to try to make it easier to toss out election results or elect election deniers and many have been unsuccessful but some have been successful and as we're seeing in tennessee and montana that these state legislatures have become very emboldened um, in certain areas and so I don't think that we should bring our systems to be tested to that extent again. We particularly, I think in our media landscape, in a lot of ways, we are weaker. Hmm. You have- Weaker actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at- not learning the lessons of of how to cover him, which is a big critique, or just the media itself is in local media and the rest are in decline. I I think a a bit of a combination of the two. Um, I think, you know, I think, for example, with what we saw on CNN, they have learned nothing. And I think there have been some shifts. Maybe that they haven't learned, perhaps that's a little harsh, but... Well, I mean, I think there are shifts. It's a new leadership there, I think, is the the thing. So you have new new leadership. It's it's a debate inside, as you've seen. Right. right? Correct. Some of the people who have been in there a long time. We're not so crazy about that, yes. as, you, as you know yes. from a lot of the reporting. Um, but there's a new leadership. That, right. So I should I should yeah. say we have new leadership at CNN, but also you have Elon Musk at Twitter who has... Yeah. How do you think he's doing over there? Well, we just saw with the Turkish elections last week that he is willing to manipulate the platform in order to violate spe- free speech, in, uh, violate principles of free speech globally in order to serve authoritarian leaders. So you have greatly diminished protections in places like Twitter where disinformation can run rife. You have the ascendance of AI that is happening this year that will also be tested. And the media will be tested with that as well. This is all so new. Have you been 
victimized by AI fake stuff yet? I mean, like, yes, but in a small, it hasn't. Because you're like usually like the, one of the first targets right. when something new like that comes there on the scene. There have been things that have, there have been like attempts. I don't know if anything has really gone like viral about it yet, but these are already being yeah. tested. And they, even outside of politics, we have seen major women figures earlier this year uh, on the streaming platform Twitch, the top women streamers all had AI uh, sexually exploitative material circulated about yeah. them. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's, um, I think rooting for Trump, who is very skilled in using mediums to his advantage, that, you know, there are a lot of times that I think people overestimate Trump in certain areas, but they still continue to underestimate Trump, I think, in his ability to carry a message and carry a base. And, you know, if he's the nominee, then that's what we deal with. And we right. will rise to the occasion and we will work to defeat him. But I don't think that we should be cheering for anyone in this situation, to be honest. Like what I said earlier, there's 18 Biden district Republicans and you need five of them. And I do think that with some of them, Biden outperformed those Republicans by a lot. And that pressure externally can be tested on that, on the pressure to conform internally. Can I just ask you one, one other thing? I mean, you, when you do a lot of these interviews, you get, you ask lots of political, lots of sort of news of the day stuff, like what's going on. What's the thing that political reporters never ask that either you're working on or um, about you that you're just surprised or that you think you want them to ask? I don't mean something like silly, but like what's something that you um, feel like doesn't get attention? I think, of course, substantively digging into what we've been working on uh, in changing approaches to things like housing, disaster response, um, et cetera. I mean, really our substantive work. But also I think in terms of politics, um, I don't think that there is, in general, we talk about elections in a completely broken way and the political dynamics that determine elections in a politically, totally broken way. I think that very often it's, cast in an ideological left-right, two-left, two-right, two-middle, and there is not enough attention being paid on who is building movements on the ground for longer-term infrastructures to win. Hmm. And that, to me, is far more determinative of the outcome of an election as opposed to narrative or decisions that are left-right, progressive, moderate, conservative, right-wing, left-wing, there really isn't enough paid attention or questions asked about who is building real power in communities. Mm. And if we did pay more attention to that, I think we would do much better and people would be better off understanding what is actually materially impacting them. That's interesting. Thank you very much for doing this. It's great course. talking to you and have a good drive to New York. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. And please reach out to me if you've got ideas or feedback on the show. rlizza at politico.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>